nice for them. Um, we'll just, and also for you guys, uh, all of you, uh, 11 seats, 12. So if some of you would like to come in from the next room, you'd be very welcome to. Um, Jacob, might be you would encourage a few people to come in there. Here we have some. Um, and then uh, the rest, uh, well, not all of us, let's turn to Haggai. So Haggai is the third last book in the Old Testament. And I find I've really enjoyed studying Haggai. Um, it's really about priorities. Um, here were a people, they came back from, they came back from exile, 50,000 of them. They were commissioned to build a temple, and for 18 years they didn't do it. Um, and uh, it wasn't that they weren't capable of building. Oh, they had building projects, they just built their fine paneled houses. And it, it showed that there was a problem with their hearts. And now what we've done is we've got to the last bit of Haggai. I suppose one of the regrets I have is with Easter, I, I thought about actually preaching this passage on Easter Sunday because there is a kind of resurrection theme to it, but I think it was better to leave it to now, but we've sort of killed a little bit of the momentum of working our way through this book. But we're at the last bit of Haggai. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I sat down and, and thought about these verses first time off, I... I was a little bit confused. Uh, they're not that straightforward. I hope to make it clear, because that's part of my job. My job uh, in dealing with this text is to open up to you what it says, to make it clear, and then to apply it. So let's pray and then look at this text. Father God, we thank you for the book of Haggai. We thank you that it is so relevant to 21st century Ireland. We pray, Father, that you would challenge us about areas of our hearts that we need to change. Help us, Lord. And we pray, Father, that as we look at this book, we would see a pursuing and gracious God who follows a rotten people like us. Thank you. Amen. So, one life, what's it all about? Or something like that. But... Um, on the 20th of May, 2000, John Piper, who's a big-time speaker, he was speaking in Memphis, Tennessee. It must have been hot. There were 40,000-plus students there. It was called the Passion Conference. And he opened by telling them this true story. He told them about Laura Edwards, a retired doctor who was nearly 80 years old, and Ruby Ellison, a nurse who was over 80. And these two women had spent the last days of their life caring for the poor and needy in the country of Cameroon. But something happened. One day they were out in their Jeep. It was just three weeks before Piper had, was speaking at the Passion Conference. They were driving their Land Rover when the brakes failed, they went over a cliff, and they died. Now, Piper looked at the people, and he said, just think about that for a moment. Here are two women around the 80 years mark, and they're serving Jesus at a time when so many people had settled into comfortable retirement, and they die in action. Is that really a tragedy? And the student said, no, it's not a tragedy. They died doing what they loved. They died serving the one they loved. That's not a tragedy. 
And then he took out an article for Reader's Digest. He explains in his talk that he doesn't know where he got the Reader's Digest because he doesn't really read it. He thinks he might have picked it up from a hospital waiting room, which one would have to wonder why he took it home with him. But he took it and he said, let me tell you what a tragedy looks like. And he read an advert. And the advert was like this. It read, Bob and Amy, or no, Bob and Penny took early retirement five years ago. He was 59, she was 51. They moved to Port Guada, Florida. They bought a 30-foot trawler, they play softball every day, and they collect seashells. And Piper looked at them and he says, that is a tragedy. And there are millions of people spending billions of dollars trying to get you to buy that dream. And he looked at those students and he says, don't waste your life. Think about it. There they are spending the last portion of their life before they will stand before the creator of the universe and they are collecting seashells, practicing their baseball swing and enjoying their trawler. Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But if that's what you live for, that's a tragedy, he said. He said, imagine Penny and Bob, the day they stand before the creator of the universe. And he says, how did you spend the last days of your lives? And they say, look at our shell collection. Have you seen my softball swing? Do you know I have a boat? That's a tragedy. And God has saved us from that tragedy. He's given us a purpose to live. But there's something within us that always goes back to other priorities. I'm going to say, actually, later, other idols. Things that we look and put in the place of God. So the people in Haggai's day, what had they done? They'd been given a task by God to build the temple. What had they done? They had spent their life building their own paneled houses. For 18 years, their priority had been themselves. They were rotten. And and let's just for a moment remember that we are equally guilty. I don't wake up every morning thinking of other people. I wake up naturally thinking about myself. It's only the Spirit of God who can move us to think beyond ourselves. It's only the Word of God who will give us the light to think beyond ourselves. Because we don't, by nature, wake up in the morning putting other people first, putting God first. Our our sinful hearts wake up thinking about me first. And if you don't know that about yourself, you're not very self-aware. Let's look at the first 11 to 14, the first section. And what this really says is that we're rotten. We're rotten on the inside. Um, I don't know about you, um, but when I read those opening words, I needed to go to my study Bible to give me a little bit of understanding about what's going on here. The date is the 18th of December, 520 BC. It's three months that they're being into building the temple. 
But he brings them back to when they had returned from exile, the 18 years they had spent not doing what God had called them to do. And he talks to the Levitical priests. Now, the Levitical priests in those days, their job was to interpret the law, the law of Moses. Their job, so questions like ceremonial uncleanliness, which is what's being talked about here, it was their job to sort those things out. And, and there's questions about, because in the Old Testament, touch and whether things made you clean or dirty. And, and the last question he gives them is about a corpse, because in the Old Testament times, if you touched a corpse, it made you ceremonial and clean. And what he is saying to them is that for the 18 years, when you came back from exile and you ignored your task of rebuilding the temple, which lay in ruins, it was almost as if there was a corpse touching you and in your mists, and it was making you unclean because it was exposing your heart, that God was not at the top of your priority list, that you are more interested in yourself and your fine-paneled houses, and we do, after all, live in a wealthy country in the Western world, so materialism is going to be a constant temptation for us, and you put all those things ahead of me, and there's this corpse in your midst, this temple that lies in rubble, and what it's doing is it's crying out of your uncleanliness, because God has given you a task, and you haven't fulfilled it. He's not being the top of your priorities. I walked to church this morning in my new runners, if you like that. Um, so I walked to church in my new runners, and one of the things that I started thinking about, so what I do is, you know, I write the sermon during the week, and uh, this sermon actually I've been working on for quite a while, and then I go over it in my head on the way to church. And, and one of the things that popped into my mind was the, the idea a friend of mine gives of idols. I found it really helpful for examining my own heart. I want you to do some personal reflection here. An idol in the New Testament are those things that you put your, they're like your functional gods. The things that you look to for security. The, the things that you look to for purpose and meaning and pleasure in life. You know, things don't have to be, um, you know, wrong. I enjoy the rugby team, Munster, but, it, you know, if it, if it ruins my week because they play badly, there's something probably wrong there with my heart. And Connor looks at me with a smile. These have been tough, barren years for the Munster team. But, but there are four ones that I want to pick up on. Approval. That's, to be honest probably my biggest idol. You know, I, I seek my security and my pleasure in approval. I, I want to impress people. I want to be popular. Now, the problem is that, you, you see, what happens then is if someone doesn't approve of you and your, your idol gets knocked down and you feel scared, what do you try to do? Well, you try to rebuild the idol because you go to other people to say, but I'm nice, aren't I? So you try to rebuild the idol. What should you do? You should run to Jesus. You should find your security in him. That's one idol. Then there's another very common idol. It's going to control. Uh, and many people are driven by a need to control. 
And, and when things are out of your control, when things look a little bit chaotic, you get angry. In fact, if you want to know what your idol is, look at what makes you angry. Because we get angry when things threaten our idol. So if control is your idol, you'll, you'll always want, you know, a power, an authority. If someone takes that away from you or does things that are out of your control, you'll feel angry and helpless and scared. What do you do? Well, you're supposed to run to Jesus, not to find some way to grasp control back. Comfort. That's a, another idol. And, and so if you think that comfort, my, my, my safety, my security, my pleasure is built on comfort, then you're going to push everyone who's difficult away from you. You're not going to want to hear challenges. You're not going to want to welcome the stranger or the needy. And, and Jesus comes as a massive comfort um, smasher, doesn't he? Think of it. I come among you as a stranger. Did you welcome me? And it really is shown in, in how we treat the, the least, the, the people who can't invite us back and, and impress us or who don't necessarily cause us to look good. You know, he talks about the, the love we're to show. You know, I came and you gave me a glass of water. Comfort. What happens when, when you're protecting your comfort? You keep all challenge away from you. You calculate what you're going to do and you do that and you congratulate yourself and, uh, but you don't really ever want to go to an area where it really hurts to sacrifice. And then the last one, pleasure. Probably more for the younger generation, pleasure seeking, but let's be honest, retail therapy, you runners, um, you know, you look to, to stuff to fill the void in your heart. And, and these, this is the reason it, it, this struck me with Haggai is because these people had the idol of comfort. And it showed that their hearts were wrong. And there was something rotten within them. Uh, but then God, in his kindness, what did he do? He sent the, the prophet Haggai to challenge them. And that's the second thing, and don't worry, the second point will be much quicker. But the second point in verse nine, or 15 to 19 is that God pursues rotten people like you and me in his love. Like, think about these people. And, and this, again, the, the next part of verse 15 to 19 is a little bit confusing. But he says, consider. You remember he did that twice earlier in chapter 1? Consider. We're to be a considering people. We're to ask God, as Dermot talked about when he came here, we're to ask God to show us our sin. We're, we're to ask, we're to consider. Literally, the word here implies with your heart. Consider the path your heart is on. I think that maturity in Christianity is, it, it comes through becoming small, not big. It comes from the people who are quick to say sorry rather than quick to defend themselves. Consider, because they're considering their heart. They're not considering everybody else's heart and how I'm better than them. Or they're considering their own heart. And they're asking God, show me how I need to change. 
And, and then he talks about when they were living for their fine paneled houses, and he says, how did that go for you? He says, well, you weren't blessed. Now, I, I think you need to be really careful with these verses because he's, I don't think he's saying, you know, if you come back to me, I'll just pour loads of blessings on you. It, what he's doing, I think, is he's saying, look, it's, 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 I've, I've brought you to a place where I love you so much that I'm not willing for you to find satisfaction in those things that don't satisfy. Uh, you remember the prodigal son. The prodigal son doesn't come to his senses, even though, like think about it, the prodigal son had the best father ever in the world. But he didn't come to his senses until he was in the pigsty. And I think that's what he's saying here, is I brought you, know, you to a place where you were seeing that what you were putting your hope in wasn't going to satisfy you, and I did it because I loved you. And then look at verse 17. But you didn't return. So he brings them to a place where they should wake up and see that the only one who can satisfy us is God himself. And yet, even then, they didn't return. So what does he do? And this is the abounding mercy of God. You have to read this book and see the abounding mercy of God. He pursued them. He pursued them. I was uh, studying Psalm 23. What I didn't realize is that you know when it says at the end, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the day of my life. I read in a, a book, the word follow is far too soft. Surely, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. And God pursues them. What does he do? He sends the prophet of Haggai. He sends Haggai the prophet to them, who speaks God's word to them. And we saw what he said. He spoke to them the promise, I am with you. He sent them the Holy Spirit to waken them up. We didn't find God. God found us. We didn't go after God. He came after us. We were stuck in our stupidity of trying to find our pleasures in idols, and he came after us because he loves us. And he knows what's best for us. And he pursued them. And he caused them, chapter 1, verse 12, to fear. And then verse 13, he caused them to accept the promise. And it reminds me of John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that caused my heart to fear. It was kindness that woke us up. And grace my fears relieved. Now, one thing before we go on to our last bit, and the last bit is a bit difficult. Notice the place where all this happens, you know, because when you read the Old Testament, you want to think, how does it point to the New Testament? Remember, he's talking about building the temple. One of the ways we understand the temple is that Jesus comes in John's Gospel, chapter 2, and says, I'm the temple. One of the ways the temple points to 
uh, Jesus is that in the temple it was a place where their sin was dealt with. There were sacrifices. Those taught an object lesson which says something has to die in your place. And it goes all the way to the Good Friday where someone dies in our place. The temple was pointing to the fact that we needed a substitute for our sin, and that substitute is Jesus, which is why after Good Friday, there was no more need for the temple sacrifices because the sacrifice that they all pointed to was him, and he had come, and he had died because he is merciful and good. And as we look at the last thing, the thing I really want to draw out is this. This God who pursues you will one day return. Jesus will return. And you will either know him as your savior and friend and comforter, or he will come as your judge. The choice is yours. And that's what this confusing, in some ways 20 to 23, deserve their own sermon. But we look at 23 first, the last verse, and you see kindness of God. He says, um, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I'll take you, my servant, Zerubbabel, and I will make you like a signet ring. Well, what's that about? Well, 66 years earlier, one of Zerubbabel's ancestors was king. And in Jeremiah, it says that before the Babylonians came and conquered, them because of their repeated sin, the signet ring, the ring of his authority was taken away from him. And now what God is saying is, I'm going to give that ring back to another descendant of King David. I'm going to return that authority to my people. That's amazing because I don't see anything in Zerubbabel's life that says he deserved that. It was sheer mercy. That's the first thing. And then also, he hadn't given up on them. You see that he has sent Haggai. I love the timing of this. They're three months into the building project. And for poor Zerubbabel, there would be times where leading was going to be difficult. But I think that over the next five years, as the temple is being built, he will have often gone back to the promise that God had for him. I am with you. And that's what we need to do. I am with you. One of the things that I'm very conscious of is that out there in the world, there are people who will make themselves our enemies, God says, but I'm with you. And when there's conflict in the church, can I also say, God says, I'm with you, but if you're in conflict with someone who's one of God's people, he's with them too. Does that make sense? That's really important to remember. Do not go into any conflict with another Christian thinking, he's with me, but he's not with them. They are the objects of his love and must be treated so, as are you. And he longs for peace. I am with you. And then finally, and I, I probably need to shorten my, my conclusion because of this, but finally, verse 22, he talks about shaking of the nations, and he had spoken about that in chapter 1, I think it was. Well, yeah, it was chapter 1. And there he was shaking the nations to bring them to the temple so that they would find peace. Now he's talking about shaking the nations in, in the preparation of judgment. You have your choice. And I don't know how this works out in the life of Zerubbabel, the, the role he had in judging, 
But I know where it points. Because in Matthew chapter 1, when it talks about the descendants of Jesus, Zerubbabel's mentioned. He's a part of the line leading to the Messiah. Acts chapter 17, and Paul is in Athens. And he says, there's a day appointed where Jesus will return, the resurrected one, and judge in righteousness. And so the righteous, loving king comes to us and says, will you come and have my peace? Follow me and live not for trash. Will you experience my love? Or will you continue to run after things that cannot satisfy and finds that one day I am your judge? Just to finish, uh, the guy here at the end, this is John Piper. I think someone has put him on the beach mocking the fact that he's looking for shells. You know, um, I don't know if that's superimposed, but this guy here, C.T. Studd, and at the end of Piper's talk, he mentioned C.T. Studd. And C.T. Studd had a song in which he said, the only thing that will last is what we do for Christ. Everything you do for Jesus in some way has an eternal significance I don't fully understand. And this guy here, C.T. Studd in the 1800s, he played, played, Peter, he played in the first Ashes game, Australia versus England. You know, the one that started that thing? He played in it. He was highly educated, very rich, and he shocked among another six people. They were called the Cambridge Seven. They went off and they packed it all in to serve God in China. He later went to uh, Africa. And one of the things uh, in his missionary life is it was not easy. It was not easy. He lost two sons in the mission fields, and yet for him, he delighted. He delighted in having Jesus is his priority. It didn't lose him. He would not have said, I lost my cricket career for Jesus. And now in heaven, he's not going, I wish I could have had a few more cricket tests. In fact, he had a bit of a humor. He said at one stage, I want to live the sort of life that when the devil hears that I died, there'll be a Thanksgiving service for my death in hell. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, help us not waste our life on seashells. Help us have the faith to realize that every small deed imperfectly done for you has eternal significance. Help us to see Jesus in the stranger and offer them hospitality. Help us to honor you in our forgiveness, in our greeting, in our welcome, in our love. Help us be people who are willing to humble ourselves, quick to say sorry, slow to defend. Help us be people who lower ourselves so that Jesus may be risen up. Help us to live lives that cause the devil to fear. Amen.